Hello, Mockingbird. Um, great to be here with so many Protestants. I feel like a witch in church. Um, I, I'm serious about that. I've, I've spoken at... Let me move over here so y'all don't have to stretch around. Whoa. See, now I've begun to improvise. I'm screwing it up. I've spoken at so many Loyolas and... and uh, Francis Xavier's and the Immaculate Heart of Mary's and Mary Knoll and um, so I mean that sincerely. I think uh, I think we are the body of Christ, and um, I think the people in I, I'm not the Pope's favorite Catholic. Let me just say that sort of at the beginning. Um, and I want to start off and sort of describe. In fact, the fact that I'm even speaking as a Christian at all is. I would have been a better titty dancer, I think, or <laughs> drug mule. I think I had more in common uh, with those people. Um, so uh, as a child, I grew up in this very hard-drinking Texas household in what I call the ringworm belt in East Texas, kind of a little backwater. My my father was an oil worker. My mother was an, an artist. We didn't know had been married seven times at the time. My grandmother used to say she didn't date, she married. Um, and I thought people who said they believed in God were being, were kidding. I really did when I was very little, when I was like four or five, and people took me to church. The Baptists tried real hard. Catholics tried a couple of Presbyterians. They jousted for my soul there in that, that little neighborhood I lived in. And I sort of thought uh, it was like the Easter Bunny. I thought it was like a social convention, the way people say, we'll have lunch next week, or it's nice to see you. It's like, yeah, we believe in God. I just thought, again, I, I, I honestly, as a child, that's the degree of agnosticism in my house. Um, uh, so to find myself here looking at your affable faces um, was not a place I ever expected to be. Uh, it started, I guess, and maybe all, all grace starts in suffering, right? It's Easter. It's still Easter for us. Is it still Easter for y'all? It is. Drags on, doesn't it? Uh, I used to think it was one day of baskets and jelly beans. Um, but I think um, one of the things I've learned is that my concept of the universe is very much influenced by, I think, is all influenced by our parents. So if you had a neglectful parent, you think of a God as a remote, sort of distant, like maybe somebody who pulled a lawnmower thing once and set it running and then it just sort of went off and had to Tahiti somewhere or something, just wasn't interested. Um, so, of course... I always say I started with my dysfunctional family, which I define as a dysfunctional family is any family with more than one person in it. Um, and I have to tell just a little story about my, my 
my mother to introduce her and sort of give you an idea of the, my house. Um, I was having her kitchen retiled, and the tile guy pried a tile off and held it up. And at this point, my mother is a little gray-haired woman who had converted, by the way, to be an Episcopalian. She'd taken instruction, went to church every Sunday. That's a whole other story. Um, and the tile guy said, now Miss Carey looks at my little gray-haired mother and says, this looks like a bullet hole. Joking. And my sister said, is that where you shot at Daddy? And my mother said, oh no, that's where I shot at Larry. Over there is where I shot at your Daddy. So the way some people have, like prom pictures, family Bible, weddings. We had the bullet hole tour of the car house. Now, I, I laugh about that now because I am not the person I was when guns were going off in my house. I have credit cards. I have car keys. I have some agency in the world. But I grew up in a household that was very chaotic. Again, I grew up white in a country that privileged that, in the richest country in the world, and I, my teeth came in reasonably straight. I, I don't think of myself as this Dickensian orphan. But a lot of my life, I was afraid. I was afraid and, uh, you know, I, I was lonely. I was really lonely. I, I recently gave a talk at New York Hospital at the School for Psychiatry, and a guy there doing research in functional MRI explained that the seeking system that, that will make you seek water if you're thirsty or food if you're hungry is, as we, those of us who are drug addicts and alcoholics know, is the same seeking system that gets activated for an addict. But it's also, you seek that, it's primarily, when that's activated, it's primarily because you have a sense of disconnection or disassociation. You don't feel connected to other people. Um, before there was Jack Daniel's whiskey, there was literature. And um, for me, reading was socially sanctioned disassociation. You know, I could open a book and I was somewhere else. I wasn't myself, I was Huck Finn. Uh, you know, I was Scout. I was, I was somebody like that. Um, I also think I was sensitive. I think probably all writers are. I probably, I actually think everybody in this room probably is. Um, the sensitive are the people I'm most interested in. We live in a, a warrior culture, in a culture that values power and control and money. And, and growing up sensitive, the way I always described it, or the way I described it to my son, who grew up himself sensitive, was it's like you have more frames per second than other people. You get. I think a sensitive child gets more information in somehow. So you develop a, a startle, you have a startle reflex. You're easy to scare. And people who are predatory, I'm thinking particularly sexually predatory, I'm thinking particularly pedophiles, look for such a person. They look for somebody who's disconnected, lonely, 
cut off from the tribe the same way a lion will look for the zebra that has a limp. It's not any, it's not any different. So the year that I was sexually assaulted, when I was about eight years old, I missed 87 days of school. And I, I really wonder, I don't really remember much about that time. I don't remember much about that year. I just remember these endless long days um, of reading in my house. And just I just didn't want to go to school anymore. I just couldn't stand it. I didn't want to be seen. I didn't want anyone to see me. Um, and I feel like I was really snatched out of the fire by librarians, codependent teachers, uh, by the sensitive, by those people who wind up being the keepers of culture, who look for those kids who are sort of uh, on the edge of things. Um, I sort of ambled my way into college, and there, I, as I say, I embraced nihilism the way a debutante does a designer handbag. It was like I read Nietzsche, and I just thought, this is it. Boy, this is great. This is, uh, this is what I thought all along. My mother had given me, when I was 12, a copy of, of Nausea. <laughs> who, gives, who gives your 12-year-old daughter a French existentialist novel about suicide to read? My mother is who, is who that was. Um, uh, God bless her. And um, I, I really, I was not looking, I was, I was a relief-seeking missile, and I was not finding relief in the secular world. But it didn't occur to me to seek anything outside my sensory. What I sought was Jack Daniels and uh, cocaine, and, and uh, that I wanted relief. Um, eventually, I found a great-looking guy. He looked like something you win at a raffle. It's like a Harvard hockey player who was a young poet um, and convinced him he needed to marry me for some reason. God bless him too. Boy, there's a place in heaven for that guy. And at a certain point, I had a child. And all I knew about myself my entire life was that I wasn't going to be my mother. I wasn't going to be that horrifying figure to my child that my mother had been to me. And I had this child, and I had, I wasn't her, but I was also drinking about a fifth of Jack Daniels a day. And I weighed like 10 pounds less than I weigh now. And I don't know what happened. I just, I could, this isn't going to be a drunk log. I just couldn't stop drinking. It's always, for me, that nexus of suffering where the wound becomes deep enough that you decide that, that you really have to heal it. Um, as you know, my people, the Catholics, were interested in suffering. That's why our hymns are so dour. Join with us, with all the angels and saints. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Um, those are some dour masses, I'm telling you. Um, And the highlight of my day at the end of my drink, I just, I'm, again, it's not going to be a drunk log, was that I would sit on 
my back porch in Belmont, Massachusetts, outside Cambridge. In some ways, I had it together. I was teaching part-time at Harvard and Tufts, and I was married to this hockey player, and I had this beautiful, blonde, blue-eyed baby boy who I looked like I was hired to handle. And um, I was right out of Rikers. And um, all my life, I had thought to myself, I needed to find somebody to love me, and I realized I really needed to find somebody that I was supposed to love, right? And so here's this kid. It's the perfect scenario. And I couldn't stop drinking. I can't even tell you how strange it was. I'm somebody who's very disciplined, who obviously has a will to persist, kind of like the cockroaches. <laughs> you can't kill us. Um, and I found myself of an evening hurtling towards a piece of concrete that had more molecular density than I had. And somehow I didn't hit it. And at that moment, I sort of became teachable. I had been talking to other people about how I was going to quit drinking, been talking to some people who were sober. Um, I've never seen people I despise more in my life. A bunch of sober alcoholics. It was just, I'm so happy to be thankful, to be grateful, to be here with you tonight <laughs> in this church basement that smells of mildew. And I was like, I wanted the champagne and the cocaine and the, um, I was an ingrate. I, I mean, I remember somebody saying, make a gratitude list. And I said, okay, I'll make a gratitude list. And the, what I put down was, I have all my limbs. <laughs> an ingrate. Um, and I found a woman nice enough to talk to me. She was a Harvard social theorist and she became my spiritual director. Also a place in heaven for her, Joan the Bone. And Joan the Bone suggested to me that I should go into these meetings and raise my hand and tell people what I thought of them. I thought, this is great. I'm going to go and I'm going to tell them how much I hate them and their whole deal. And they will throw me out and I can start drinking again. This is perfect. I go and I raise my hand and it's like, yes. And I've been sitting there, you know, with my sunglasses on in the back seat, sort of like I spent much of my junior year in high school. I am not grateful or thankful or happy to be here. I'm not glad to be sober. I, I, I want to kill all of you. Um, you repel me. I, you look like Moonies. I think you want me to sell incense in the airport. I'm afraid of you. I don't want to be here. This does not seem like a solution to anything. And I was talking to Mary before the talk, and she was saying, uh, you know, God is in the truth. God is in the truth, even when the truth is bad. It's always amazing when you lean into the hardest part, the thing that you most think you can't say, often that's the place something will bloom up into being. And um, they just said, yeah, keep coming, you know. Bleh. And um, <laughs> I hated him. I hated him even more. And then after the meeting, these people came up to me and said, you know, I feel exact, I felt exactly like you feel. Nobody had ever told me that because I'd never told anybody how I felt. That was something you were supposed to protect, how you actually felt, 
you're not supposed to actually represent how you feel in the world, that will, that will get you a smack. You don't, you don't want to tell anybody how you feel. It's a strange thing. When people tell you they love you and they don't know who you are, it doesn't even get in. And a strange thing happened, started to happen to me. I started to feel connected to these people. This, these psychiatrists I was talking to up at Cornell Medical Center were saying what happens when you tell your story we're, we are and we embed ourselves, we remember through a filter of selves and we create ourselves out of all these stories. And when you tell your story and somebody looks you in the face and nods and smiles, you start to get this hormone secreted called oxytocin, which is the same thing that a mother gets when she's breastfeeding that helps her not put her baby in the microwave in the middle of the night when it wakes her up. So if you're somebody like me who has what's, what psychiatrists have pointed out is a very high cortisol level, which is, that's the stress hormone. I've, I've had my cortisol level drawn, and people say, did you just run a marathon? You know, adrenaline, all those jack-you-up things that are a source of anxiety or people who've been traumatized or anxious have a lot of these. Oxytocin is like the anti-venom to those drugs. It is to the snake bite of that anxiety is that sense of being connection, is that sense of connection. So I began to feel connected, and I realized I was incredibly depressed. I'd been depressed all my life, and I found myself nine months later in the mental Marriott in Boston, Massachusetts, suicidal, thinking my son would be better if I were gone. And that was the truth of how I felt. It was the best thing I ever did. I spent all my life trying not to be crazy. <laughs> and when I said to Joan the Bone, she came to visit me in McLean Hospital in Belmont, Massachusetts, she said, you know, I said, don't tell me this is normal. <laughs> it's not normal to be in the ha-ha hotel, you know. This is sui generis, you know, this is me specific. But it was a wonderful thing to check into a hospital. I slept. I hadn't slept in years. I had a baby who was growing up who hadn't slept a whole lot. Um, and while I was there, I began to pray. And um, I had never really prayed before. People told me if I was going to stay sober and be happy, I had to pray. I said, but I don't believe in anything, you see. I'm smarter than that. You cannot trick me. Um, and somebody said something very simple to me. Why don't you just pray on your knees every day for 30 days and see if your life gets better? Like, what does it cost you? It's sort of an interesting question, right? If you pray, what does that cost you? You know, you think you have a connection to something. If, if you're a believer and you believe that through prayer you'll connect to the person or, or being or force for good that created the universe and makes the flowers bloom and all that, and you're not willing to pray because you don't have time, I was too busy. But something that started to happen to me, south of my neck is the only way I can describe it. Everything north of my neck was a problem. If I could have had a head transplant, I would have been in that, the first one in line. 
because my mind woke up every morning and it never had any good news. It was every bruise was bone cancer. And I realized when I started praying that I had, I had believed. I had engaged in magical thinking my entire life. I believed. This is how narcissistic and self-centered I was. Speaking of narcissistic, one way, I, I think my, I was ta- telling this story about my mother drunk one night walking and looking up and seeing the moon, little sliver moon, and saying, I have an earring like that. So I, I realized in my little self-involved, fearful, narcissistic state um, that I had been projecting onto the landscape. I thought I knew what was going on. It's not just that I didn't believe in God. That's, that would kind of be okay if you were just a rational person who just didn't get it or didn't want to get it or whatever. But I actually believed that there was a force that conspired for the guy in the Jaguar to get the parking place. The day I was the room parent, I had the cupcakes, I had my three-and-a-half-year-old on my hip, and that rich bastard got my parking place. I actually, in my mind, unadmitted to myself, I actually believe stuff like that. And suddenly I began noticing through prayer and through meditation, these things, these ideas would come to me just like small ideas. I remember our car broke down on the side of the road one day, and I didn't pound my head on the steering wheel. It was such a revelation. I just sort of got out of the car, and my son said, you know, the car won't work. I'm like, nope. We're going to walk on Storrow Drive for a while, you know. Things began to change for me. Um, that same son, when he was about six years old, I was newly divorced, sashayed into my bedroom and said, um, I want to go to church. Now, at this point, I'm praying every day. I've been sober like two or three years. I'm, I'm, I pray every day. In fact, I don't make a major decision without prayer. I've realized that unless I get something very quiet and solid south of my neck that tells me to act, I should do nothing. That's the hardest thing for me to do. I, I want to go out there and slay the woolly mammoth and fight the good fight. And um, the hardest thing for me is not doing anything. So I was in a bad marriage. For three years I prayed about it, but I didn't get divorced. We stayed in couples counseling. And you know, when I decided through prayer that we needed we both decided, I didn't decide by myself, but when I decided for my part that that was the right thing to do, it was very quiet. It wasn't like, that rotten bastard. There was none of that noise. It was very quiet. And it's not that I wasn't afraid, and it's not that it looked easy, but I felt like that was some kind of, again, I wouldn't have even called it God at this point. I would have said, some, I'm praying to my sober self. I think was what I said. I thought I was hypnotizing myself with biofeedback. And that was why I'd been able to stay sober for three years and why I wasn't depressed, I wasn't in the middle of Marriott, why I'd gotten a job, uh, why everything seemed to be kind of going my way. 
But my son came to me and said, I want to go to church. And I said, why? And he said, probably the only thing he could have said to get me to go to church, to see if God's there. And I was like, I didn't like soccer either. You know, can I just say I hate soccer? I hate how nobody scores. I hate how for 10 years they just run in an ignorant herd. I hate it. And so I got up and I called a friend of mine in Episcopalian, my friend John, and I said, don't you belong to some Episcopal church or something? Can we go to church with you? He's like, yeah, I'll pick you up. So you go in there, there are all these nice, smiley people whom I hated. <laughs> and we started a program I called Godorama, which was anybody who had any kind of spiritual practice whatsoever, I don't care how flaky it was. We went to conservative Jewish temples. We went to liberal Jewish temples. We went to a Jewish midrash. We went to a Southern Baptist church. We went to a Lutheran church. We went to a Unity church. We went to a Unitarian church. I love the Unitarian church. I, today's gospel is from Glamour magazine. <laughs> um, I actually kind of like the, the midrash, the Jewish midrash, where they all sat around and read the Hebrew Bible and talked about stuff, but I didn't, I didn't want to learn Hebrew. It seemed too hard. But I found, my, if, if you had told me I was going to become a baptized Catholic, I just would have told you, this, again, this will never happen. I found myself in this little church, not a firebrand minister, Father Joe, not the brightest bulb on the tree, really not. Not, a, not an intellectual. I remember at one point I did the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius, you know, that the Jesuits do. And I said, Joe, have you ever done the spiritual exercises? They're like, oh, no. Mm -mm. I said, why not? He says, all that reading. Mm -mm. <laughs> no. Uh, and the day we got there, it was Halloween. It was All Saints, the Feast of All Saints. All the kids had dressed up as saints. I am St. George, I will slay the dragon. You know, and then I am, you know, Joan of Arc, they're going to burn me at the stake. You know, I don't know how they sanitized it, but they fixed it up so they weren't saying that. Like, I will pull my eyes out on a plate. No, they didn't, they didn't, they left all that part out. But anyway, the kids are in their costumes and they get up there and then the priest says, I want to talk to you about Jesus. So they say, okay. And says, so all the kids gather around their costume. Father Joe goes down, he sits right there. He's about 70 years old. They gather around him, he says, I want to talk to you about Jesus like, like, does anybody have a brother they really like, a big brother? Yes, some people, you have a sister? Yeah, I have a sister. Does she take care of you? She takes care of me. I said, okay. He said, any, any of you have a pet you really like? Like a pet who's, oh, they did, they had all kinds of pets. One little boy is waving his hand. He's like, what do you have? And he said, I have a worm. <laughs> and Father Joe said, really? A worm? And he was just, he wasn't making his point anymore. I it was interesting. He was the kind of person, he listened to Rush Limbaugh. And, I mean, so do many people, I'm, you know. But he was very right-wing politically. But when the Syracuse Gay and Lesbian Consortium came to, our, came to the parish house and asked him, they'd been thrown out of the, I think it was the Methodist Church basement, 
we can't, they won't let us meet. Can we just meet here? We'll pay you rent. You know, you won't even see us. We'll hide our gay and lesbian selves. And he's like, no, you don't have to pay rent. Just come anytime. Maybe we should have some gay and lesbian masses, right? Y'all want to do that? Y'all want to have, maybe we should have a party, you know? He was, he was somebody who in the moment was able to say very simple, direct things. I'm about to finish up. Um, and I spent most of the last year of his life with him. Uh, when I was in Syracuse, I saw him every day. And I remember coming in, and he was all stroked out, and he was suffering. He had this cancer on his head, and he couldn't move. And no one went to see him. No one from our parish came to see him. It made me so mad. And I said, the first day I saw him, I was... I had sort of been guilted into going to see him by a friend of mine, another priest, who says, you haven't been to see Joe? And I was like, oh, God, I've got to go see Joe, I know. So I went to see Father Kane, and he's laid out, and I said, he, he had messed his pants, and he couldn't, they weren't coming to change him, and I was very angry. And I kept going and looking down the hall and coming back and looking down the hall, and he said, what is the matter with you? What is wrong with you? Why are you so agitated? I said, I want the aid to come here and clean you up so you'd be more comfortable. And he's like, it's okay. It takes patience. I said, can I ask you something? He said, yeah. I said, was it, was it, is it embarrassing to have people do that, to have to clean you up so you can't go to the bathroom? He's like, oh, just the one time. Just the first time. I thought about that because, you know, we all look at old age and we think, right? That will be so terrible. I can't go to the bathroom. And it's like you hate it one time, and then you're like, oh, thank God, they come and wipe my ass, right? <laughs> Lucky me. And I said to him, aren't you mad at God? He's like, not yet. He didn't say, you shouldn't be mad at God. I introduced him to my Jewish fiance. I said, do you like Michael? I said, you don't like Michael. You were asleep the whole time he was here. He's like, Jesus was a Jew. <laughs> he was somebody who had a, just a kind of spirit, an alertness to the moment, which is the only place I don't want to be. I want God to give me the tablets. I want a long-term plan. And the only place I ever get it is if I can arrive. Isn't that good? Good hands. If I can arrive, I want to sort of Not only was I baptized, you know, I joined the Peace and Social Justice Committee. I don't know how the Catholics got me. I liked that they had a body on the cross. No offense. <laughs> but I, I liked, you know, that crucifixion. I remember saying to my son once, isn't that hideous? Isn't that horrible? This was before I was baptized. I said, why do you want to come here? This guy's like nailed up on a tree like that. And he said, um, well... What else would you have God do? I said, well, I don't know. Why couldn't you just say a jump rope rhyme and then you're redeemed? I mean, how about that? Make it easy. He said, who would pay attention to that? He said, it's like Pulp Fiction. Nobody would pay attention to anything like that. You need a story. And in a way, it's true that I think we all need to recognize suffering at some point in each other and regardless of the difficulty, that in the truth of that, 
somewhere is the only place. I always say as deep as the wound is, that's how deep the healing is going to be. So at this point, I, I actually know that Jesus loves me better than all of you, as has been made evidence. It's not that he doesn't love you, but he's, I think, I do. I feel, it's the opposite. I feel like somebody who, in, who was snatched out of the fire. I, I had, I saw a friend of mine in, in uh, L.A. this year, and he said, whoever thought you would wind up happy? It's kind of like the curse of the cat people, right? Um, but I just want to close with a sort of final image of Father Joe. One of the last times I saw him, I was going to see him. Because I want to have Q&A. I was going to see him, and um, it was Christmas, and I was resentful about going to see him because I didn't want to say goodbye to him because I was afraid he was going to die while I was gone. I didn't want to do it. I just didn't want to do it. So I kept making appointments, seeing more students, seeing more students, making appointments. And um, I was teaching, and I had to drive back to New York. I had to clean out my apartment, blah, 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 blah. I had all this stuff to do. So I stop. I grab a little poinsettia. I bring it to Father Joe's chair, and there he sits, you know, just... Completely solitary, he said, um, I said, you know, Merry Christmas. He had a, a gift for me. And he looks up at me. I give him that poem. said, he's like, let's go give this to the Blessed Mother, he says. So I said, okay. <laughs> so we get in the elevator, which is an ordeal. This cancer is taken over his head. It's like superating tree bark. And I look at this man in a wheelchair in considerable pain, who every time I came in, he's like, you know, so-and-so needs a, a copy of the Bible. Could you get her one? <laughs> I'm like, yeah. You know, he's, he was still ministering to everybody he met. And we're sitting there, and we go down, and here is this, the chapel. It's one of those hideous new construction kind of churches with this really bad neo-African Madonna about this big. Terrible. Like made out of plasticine or something hideous and he says take it now put it over there it over and it overlooked the dumpsters in the back of the nursing home he said take it and put it over there I said okay I put it over there and he said looks great doesn't it if I could look at each instant as he did with a place to look where to put my little flower whatever it is I have, whatever grin I have for the guy on the subway who I secretly want to stab. If I could just flip that around for one minute and think that I owe him that little poinsettia, um, that's where grace is and that's where God is. And Thank you.